Hi everyone and welcome to another podcast of Globalize Asia. The prestigious Z Jaipur Literature Festival, widely known as JLF, is celebrating its 10th anniversary in 2017. JLF have also organized its fourth consecutive year event in London at British Library in King's Cross. Distinguished speakers like Mira Soyal, Patrick French, Shashi Tharoor, Vayu Naidu, William Dalrymple, Karan Johar, and many other renowned luminaries have attended and made the event a continuous success. We caught up with JLF's festival director Namita Gokhale in London to discuss how the festival over the years have appealed to the global audience and organically grew into the international markets. Watsala and I enjoyed Namita's comparative analysis of mythological stories to a modern world's pragmatism. Let's hear how the journey of Namita Gokhale unfolds since her first book launched back in 1984 to the latest one called Things to Leave Behind and managing one of the biggest literary festival of its kind. Namita hi and thank you very much for joining us today at Globalization. Let's start with the uh, Jaipur Lit Festival second year in row in London. How it is different from the first year in comparison to the reception you received and how different it is from the Jaipur Lit Festival in Jaipur. Well, actually this was our fourth year in uh, London. The first 3 years we were in the South Bank Center and I think we grew from strength to strength because of the support we got from audiences and from uh, writers and speakers in the UK both of Asian origin, South Asian origin and also um international writers here. And um, the idea I think came something like this that the Jaipur Literature Festival well I hesitate to call it just a brand uh, rather than that it is an experience um, it is an experience of literature and thinking out loud and trying to make sense of our changing times which is not centered around the anglophone world it is not centered around english alone and it is not centered around the traditional uk us literary bias it celebrates the 24 indian languages you know we have 24 national languages we have including english we have six classical languages in india including sanskrit tamil malayalam oriya and others so indian literature is very diverse very deep rooted and each of these literatures has its own literary traditions and then around the world you have this huge uh, arc of the diaspora most of whom are highly successful and are very evolved in their thinking in their ability to connect modernity and tradition so the jaipur festival celebrates all these things and it has a dedicated audience from around the world of people who come again year after year so we found a lot of our jaipur audiences internationally who could not come to jaipur would love to celebrate the spirit of jaipur so we came up with it in london we've also this year had an edition of the jaipur literature festival in melbourne in australia which was part of the melbourne writers festival and they gave us a day and it was a hugely successful event and this will be the third year of our festival in boulder colorado so you know quite a organic natural way our festival is finding new roots interesting and why can i just ask why it was jaipur as a as a place that you've chosen to start 
the festival? Well, the place chose us. There was a lady called uh, Faith Singh who wanted to set up a festival and as part of another uh, sort of event of the Virasat Foundation. And the first two years, we helped her set it up as a subsidiary of this uh, uh, larger event and then uh, 10 years ago Sanjoy Roy and Teamworks took it over and that's from when we dated as the official Jaipur Literature right. Festival. Okay. It, it just happened and we were lucky because Jaipur is a very cosmopolitan city yet it is a city with a lot of heritage and you know if you do something in Delhi people don't switch off if you do something in big cities though I was happy to see people switched off in London over the weekend but maybe in India it's different pressures but people love to come to Jaipur from all over India all over the world so I can't tell you why because there was no reason why sure. but I can tell you why it works that's amazing I think that also gets me to uh, our next question which is interesting so you mentioned that Indian literature has so much to offer rightly so that's pretty much why the festival is becoming global and growing organically. And the Indian reader, the urban Indian reader today is quite well-traveled, discerning, hungry for more material. How do you think readership has evolved over the, over the years since your first novel came about? My first novel was published a very, very long time ago, I must say, in 1984. That's almost 33 years ago now. And at that time, the UK was really the hub of international publishing for English writers, and then it was the US. But uh, you'd be fascinated to learn that India is now the second largest publishing hub in the world mm -hmm. for English. So the, the, the center of publishing in India has returned to India. Also, there is a huge, huge, huge numbers. I don't have the figures in front of me right now, but I have them in my diary. But there is this huge number of aspirational Indian speakers and um, I think 10% of the population 10 to 12 speaks English and this figure is supposed to quadruple in the next 20 years so India is a very important English language market for reading mm -hmm. and you know there are writers like Jetan Bhagat yeah. or this young lady called Savi Sharma who sell in hundreds of thousands and the reason is that people want to read and understand in English because they say you live in as many languages as you know. And I think for a new generation of first-time English readers and speakers, they are discovering new ways of living or thinking through that language. There was this um, beautiful uh, quote that somebody said to me in the Jaipur festival. They said it in, on the platform and I remember it always. And it said that this new generation of Indians they dream in Hindi, but they aspire in English. Wonderful. So yeah. it is, and you know, Indians have always been bilingual, trilingual. Most of us speak at least two languages, often three languages. Mm -hmm. So it happens like that. It's it's the rich, multivocal uh, literary thing that sparks off because you know you if you notice if you're in India very easily you'll switch from speaking to one language to yeah. the other and I always find it very amusing how then I pick up English and people pick up English and equally most people know also say Punjabi Marathi Uriya something else yeah. often too people know Gujarati and Marathi they you know Telugu and Tamil you know it's yeah. it's so um, we are so fortunate to have such a rich, 
rich, rich, rich literary uh, tapestry in our country. So I think the English uh, publishing is growing mm-hmm. from actually strength to strength. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, but what I care most passionately about is translations. Yes. And I'm happy to say that translations are growing both from the Indian languages into English and international languages, but also importantly within the Indian languages. That means yes. uh, from say Malayalam to Hindi or yes. Bangla to Kannad, these things are happening more and more. And I think that's that's also why because we all we are deeply rooted. We want to go and living here in London. You know, we can tell you there are some things that parents do here that people in India don't do anymore. The Sikhs are learning the Gurbani, the Malayalis are getting the kids to learn Malayalam. Uh, so there's so much going on in, t- in terms of that. And I think with that, what I want to ask is that you've brought back the Mahabharata in schools. Uh, that was not something I studied when I, was, when I was growing up in India. That that was something we did on the side or learned about it on the side as way of visual Mahabharata cartoons or, or read them as, as these pictorial books. So what was the thought process behind that? Why Mahabharata back into schools? Well, um, as these things happen, it was of course an accident mm-hmm. in the sense that the then publisher at Penguin uh, asked me if I would do a book for Puffin India on the Mahabharata and he said about 40,000 words. Now I had never actually read the Mahabharata because like most Indians we all know the Mahabharata but where we assimilate from we don't know. It's some comic books here, some TV series here, some uh, Nani Dadi ki stories here and there. Hmm. None of us actually sits down and reads it. So when I um, took up the challenge, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be to take these 100,000 verses, the longest epic and the most complicated story within story epic, put it into 40,000 words for children. There was also the very complicated sexuality. And how do you tell them that somebody was born from the year, somebody was born from here? It's puzzling also. But... I, it was those two years that it took me to write the Mahabharata for young readers mm-hmm. were possibly the most rewarding in my life. I read many, many, many versions of the Mahabharata mm-hmm. and I um, then tried to condense, excerpt, but I didn't try to make it into a fairy tale. The Mahabharata is a very deep study of human nature yeah. and doesn't shy away from war, from death, and I thought I should keep these in the story for the children. It's it's been in print for a long time. A lot of schools have it as sort of additional reading. And I find to my delight that it's not that the Mahabharat is getting forgotten in India. The young children usually know more than I do. And uh, that's both a surprise and a bit scary. Whenever I go back to address all these children, I polish up and do a little homework, but they know so much. Mm-hmm. And you know, Mahabharat is one of the greatest texts anywhere in the world. The Ramayana is a great epic, but it is a prescriptive epic. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of tries to set out what should be done and what should not be done along a certain uh, structure of uh, Sri Ram and of a royal hierarchical structure within that. Yeah. But the Mahabharat is not at all prescriptive. It is not an ethical text. It is not a prescriptive text. And people text. draw a lot in their day-to-day lives from the Mahabharata. People learn themselves. If you read the Mahabharata, you're constantly in some conundrum. You're constantly in some dharam sankat of, you know, the concept of dharmic choice. Yes. 
is it my duty to do this or is it my duty to do this? Did Krishna do the right thing? Yeah. At, at several points, I must yes. say, he seemed yeah. to have done what could be right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Did What are the choices? It's about the nature of choice. And human nature, all the characters in the Mahabharata, you can recognize around you. So I think anybody who reads the Mahabharata with some application learns about moral ambiguity about human nature and emerges a stronger person. I think there is no text quite like that. You could look at the Bible, you could look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, you could look at these are great, great texts. I mean, I love the Bible. I think it is mm -hmm. one of the greatest poetic texts yeah. in the world. But how the Mahabharata tests you, teaches you, challenges you to think is, I think, the greatest quality of the Mahabharata. But I do have a question on, specifically on the Mahabharata and the relevance of today's society from a gentleman called Faizan from Pakistan. He follows the Vedas very closely. He's read the Mahabharata. But he wonders, and especially in a society like Pakistan where the gender differences are so conspicuous, um, how easy it is or to draw parallels to the role of women uh, and con the contemporary woman from Mahabharata. What, what do you see? Because you've written so many books apart from you know your uh, translation work and other work, uh, which which have been uh, kind of almost liberating women to so, so to speak away from the Mahabharata. What, so what let you think? me break my reply into two parts. Sure. First of all, I'd like to assure Faizan and others like that that mm -hmm. in most senses of the word, the Mahabharata is a secular text. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, there are great traditions in Urdu or in Indian languages of it being told by the Muslim community. One of my dearest friends is somebody called uh, Ghafiruddin Mewati, and he represents a tradition of Pandun ka Kada, which is the Mewati Muslims uh, around um, in Rajasthan, around the place that was uh, Sariska. Mm -hmm. which was the place of the Mahabharata Agyatvasya. And they tell it, uh, I have, um, my friend Gafruddin Mewati mm -hmm. can recite the text along with a group of people in a slight Kavali style, they tell it, mm -hmm. uh, for 22 days wow. by memory. And this was composed by a great poet so many years ago. And um, the Mahabharata, as I said, is a very contemporary, um, well, uh, can't have a contemporary epic, but the stories and the characters in the Mahabharata are timeless. And as you well know, it is said that if it is there in the Mahabharata, it is there in the world. Whatever is not there in the Mahabharata is not there in the world. The strong characters, the strong women characters in the Mahabharata uh, leave one wondering about the what those times must have been like. Um, you have Ganga, who when she gets married, tells her husband that uh, I will marry on condition that you ask me no questions. And uh, when he in fact does uh, and he agrees and then after she has killed seven of her children and he asks her, she departs when he, because there was some karmic reason why those things were happening. Um, you have Draupadi mm -hmm. who actually I don't think is the strongest character in the Mahabharata mm -hmm. because a lot of her strength came from handling things that were not of her choice. If you think of Sita, Sita made the choice to follow her husband. Mm. Um, 
in to exile into the first one was and it was sita who again made the choice in the second agni pariksha not to return to ram so sita had agency uh draupadi had revenge and it was a bitter revenge yeah. that hurt everybody all around and i think it is actually sad and pathetic and something you see again in today's world that in spite of having five husbands she had nobody to defend her really but uh, when you see figures like ambika amba ambika ambalika shikhandin and uh, so many major and minor characters in the mahabharat each is invested with her own strength and does what she or he wants and uh, when i was young i was told mahabharat should not be kept at home because there will be a fight in within the household and quite rightly because they wanted women to read about sita and her perceived obedience but she was not that obedient and not to for the women in the house not to encounter these very strong um, women characters in the mahabharat in case they got inspired yeah. in some wrong way I just written a book for young readers and uh, for me there was this absolutely heroic figure of Hidimba Hidimba was the first wife of Bhim and she was a rakshash rakshashi but she uh, then married Bhim and her son Ghatotkach was half rakshash half human half human because even the pandavas were half human and half immortal because their parents were all gods so the st- these are the subaltern stories within the mahabharat but each of them you see the the strength of the characters and the the great dilemmas they face yeah. and how they resolve these conflicts and in fact i have to tell you that when i finished my book on the mahabharat i completely stopped writing for 2 years felt what a fool am i to write anything everything that needs to be written is there in the mahabharat took me a lot of courage even to get back to writing mm-hmm. and uh, just now my new novel for young readers is again set in the times of the mahabharat so once you enter that um, treasure trove it's very difficult to wander out and stories within stories within stories mm-hmm. so taking away from mythology for for a second and into world of fictional and non-fictional when you started writing many years ago how do you measure success of your books is it all about the bottom line figures is it about other prominent um writers judging you and giving you some critical reviews on that or is it some other factors that you know you say yeah i i'm really happy with this aspect of my book writing now Well I uh, I don't think I'm I've never been a greatly best selling writer I think but I've stole steadily over the years I've had ups and downs my first book was a huge success then for a long time nobody would publish the next two books simply because they were so different from the first book so I what I'm proudest of as an individual is uh, not in terms of success um because I think that's uh, just a really a matter of luck also mm. but um of being able to explore so many different aspects i didn't get stuck into one style of writing for me each book is a sort of a quest or journey or discovery i learn while doing these books and uh, the other thing is even if you get some readers who read and appreciate a book that is 
enough mm. for a writer i think i think writers write because they have to write and if they also happen to or not because they have to write because they can't not write mm. it's a very painful tedious process but i think there's a story which has to be told and that story possesses you and yeah. you tell it and all real writers write for this reason and um, success graphs some you have to look at in terms of hundreds of years what might be a huge success today might be forgotten a few years later something may remain resurface so i don't think writers can be very success oriented otherwise they will have disillusion and heartbreak ahead so nahi hota writers have to be in a different space mm. Mm. but having said that it is true that in today's world but that may not be true for mm. tomorrow or day after but as of today Uh, marketing skills are very important for a writer yes. there is yeah. so much flack everywhere there is so much static everywhere that for a writer to be noticed i think you have to become two people half the year you're the writer you write that book mm. and then you become the marketer and really often the success of the book depends on how you market it rather than how you write it but i don't think that goes I think that's about publishing or about marketing. Mm. I think real literature and the voice of real literature remains true for a long long time. Mm. So for a lot of budding writers who come to your festivals who what is the common theme or question they might have they they might be not everybody has comes from a privileged background they love writing they want to see that as a as a profession but end of the day it's a you know financial viability of supporting your family supporting yourself uh, through writing so is that something do you give any any guidance do you give to these individuals who come and ask these questions if they do it has been said many times that you can make a fortune by writing but not a living so if you you can't it's it's an unpredictable profession and uh, well either you should have a wife or a husband who supports who you supports or you. you have some sort of support system there are many academic grants writing retreats but i think it works very well if you have a day job and you write about from that yeah. and if you do hit that success that you can give up your day job then it's all right but i don't think any budding writer should think uh, that they have entered the kind of security zone mm. where they're writing will provide them a living because it could happen with one book and it may not happen with the next so i think just uh, building on to that as well with especially with the jaipur lit fest um how is how do you think the evolving digital media landscape is kind of presenting and will present keep presenting opportunities for you to take this festival further and grow it more um i think in terms of how can you better utilize digital platforms to take the festival places i remember it was 20 years ago to the day it was in the summer of 20 years ago i was in a seminar in cambridge a summer seminar and somebody said remember every change in technology is a change in consciousness i loved the phrase but i did not realize how just in front of my eyes the whole thing will evolve um we live in a different technology environment now and this new environment surrounds us the way of the air we breathe almost uh, it picks up our thoughts it it guides our thoughts sometimes manipulates us much more than we understand it's it's both a danger 
and a great great opportunity the danger is for group think mass think manipulation even when you think you're getting your independent opinion through as is the case with so much social media yeah. which began with so much hope but has become almost a vehicle of hatred and distortion but in writing it has made it much more democratic because anybody can write but after that and anybody can put up their work there but then the natural biases set in uh, they are the giant players whether it is amazon whether it's a big publishing houses like penguin random house mm. they do control the market how do you break through who are the gatekeepers these have always these things have happened always long ago they may be have been some um, young poetess tending her herds in kashmir singing a song writing a poem which was forgotten or maybe it stayed and carried on the way some of these old bhakti poems have survived for years and generations and centuries so i think it was adi shankar acharya who said or is supposed to have said he said every book it was not called a book in those days it was a manuscript but every book has a kundali and i really believe that every book has a kundali in the sense there is a destiny sometimes a book is rediscovered who would have thought that the diary of anne frank would impact for so many centuries there are so many what we think are best sellers they don't survive the immediate hype so but i think that it is a collective thing i think human beings define ourselves by our stories of each other we understand we are in fact each other's stories and we are a continuing narrative yeah. which history builds on so i think telling every story is key and important to the human experience now who downloads it how many people internalize it how it gets translated how it survives as a meme these are different issues altogether but i think each and every story told or forgotten or remembered or archived or rediscovered every single story adds to our understanding of ourselves as a species and our understanding ourselves on this planet okay there's a lot of big words but i meant every word of it Mm-hmm. That is very interesting, especially with storytelling suddenly coming back yes. with Boomerang. And we met Vayunaidu uh, the other day, and uh, she is she's very such an engaging good. storyteller. She is indeed. Yeah, with fantastic stories on various topics, and you know, she's just had the Cambridge um, hmm. Award as well. Interesting. Let's take you away from your writing and your day job. What keeps you busy in terms of hobby or passion? no hobby no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry i live books i breathe books my day job is part as a festival director and um, also as a publisher yeah and also as a writer and then um, a lot of people reach out to me for mentoring which sometimes i can help and sometimes i can't but i try to be helpful right. so i get a lot of questions queries men- uh, manuscripts sent my way and uh, i can't stop reading if nothing else i'll i'll read the 
airline roster or something but yeah. it's become so trained to words that um, even I mean I'd love to my idea of a holiday would be to watch Netflix for a week yeah. but uh, I don't even go into other medium so much mm. um, because I'm in this space just now I can't say it'll sure. stay this way but no hobbies no relaxations <laughs> I like to swim and um, yeah, I like a nice meal and I like to have a drink and I like to chat with a few friends. I hate socializing with a large group of people. I'm not very good at that. But Has it I, always been the case or with the time you just No, I think to... it's simply because of also the fact that all these festivals have such a huge calendar. Mm -hmm. You have the Jaipur Literature Festival in January, then you have, we have the lovely um, um, Melbourne Festival, which we may repeat in Australia in February. Then we have the British Library Festival in May. Yeah. I'm also doing a wonderful festival. I'm taking a sabbatical for a while this year, which is the Bhutan Festival in August. Mm -hmm. in September, we have the Boulder Festival, and then we return to the Jaipur Festival. I also do a small genre-based crime writers festival. So it's words, 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 words. And yeah, buying specs is one of my hobbies. I love to buy new and elegant specs. And of course, I have to keep changing the lens because eyesight keeps getting worse and worse. <laughs> but um, I, at the moment, is so immersed in the privilege of the work I've been given by life. Wow. I'm so, so, so lucky. Mm -hmm. And in, to interact with writers, to interact with readers that I, uh, draw all my sustenance from it and yes I have a granddaughter I love I have a very large extended family who well they, they see we get along I mean I have no distinction between work and relaxation I love what I do that, that. That's a very good space to be in. Not like, many people can say can that. Say that. Yeah. yeah. But just just out of curiosity, tell us a little bit. Just take us behind the scenes of the Jaipur Lit Festival. How long do you pl start planning to oh, run around the, the year? Around the year. And for me, I'm very fortunate to work with a brilliant production team. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have to take much of the angst. There is a certain amount of sort of administrative dexterity needed but there's a wonderful team helping with that the, the thing is to keep your radar for me to keep my radar open and to see what is happening in the Indian languages around the world how do I balance it so I, I have a notebook or several notebooks and uh, yeah I just keep not noting ideas mm. jotting down ideas um, mm. connecting ideas yeah. that's what I do round the year like often the festival is still going on and I'm getting those ideas and I tell people, okay, now I'm going to sit in a corner because I have to take these notes for next year's festival. Yeah. But so it is a lot of creative planning and creativity as well and all. I think that that's a huge part of these festivals which a lot of people may underestimate. No, it it's on the programming. That's yeah. why uh, the Jaipur Festival is such a wonderful festival because my co-director William Dalrymple and I mm -hmm. and Sanjoy Roy, who's mm -hmm. the very visionary producer, between the three of us, uh, we have a huge range of interests mm -hmm. and uh, of outreach yeah. and um, so uh, it reflects a much greater spectrum yeah. than um, festivals where the directors may have the same sort of uh, backgrounds or skills. So it's a diverse. And my passion is for the Indian languages. Yeah. You know, um, I, I write in English 
But once years ago, somebody said to me, he was in Dubai and he said, Namita ji, Angrezi bol bol ke jabra tak gaya hai. <laughs> that sometimes, I, I love the Indian languages. Uh, sadly, I'm not fluent in too many of them. I was about my, to ask how many languages spoken can... Hindi is very good. Right. But my written, I can't really write in Hindi. I appreciate the Hindi language, but I love to take in the literature in the other yeah. languages. I think we must but also get Urdu back. Urdu has just left the northern belt. I don't think so. As long as you have Bollywood, Urdu hasn't left. And really? you know, uh, strangely enough, the place where Urdu is very vibrant is in the Punjab. Hmm. And Punjabi and Urdu are always almost dancing with each other. Because of course, Punjabi had the same script earlier. Gurmukhi is there, but across northern India, mm -hmm. people uh, wrote in uh, the Urdu script. And I think we, more than getting Urdu back, what we need to do is once again recognize Hindustani. <laughs> Hindustani yes. is a hmm. beautiful language mm -hmm. that took the best of Urdu and the best of Hindi. Yeah. And at the time of partition, Sadly, Hindustani suffered because the government tried to bring in this uh, Doordarshan kind of uh, officialies which, which, which I think deprived both Urdu and Hindustani, Hindi, Hindi of common ground. And uh, there are lots and lots of things being done around Delhi to bring Hindustani back. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a friend of mine, she was here at the festival last year and uh, she has brought out this program called Hindustani Awaz mm -hmm. and Hindustani Awaz has many editions across Delhi. They, they have, the Urdu language is such a great literary language yeah. that I don't think there's any fear of it dying. Now there's an annual festival of Urdu literature in Delhi. Mm -hmm. It's called Rekta. I think it's into its third year now. And uh, yeah, the crowds have been to Rekta and the, literally the thousands and thousands of young people coming to get a glimpse of Urdu. It's doing all right. It, it's been amazing to listen to you. I think it's very, you're very engaging and can we extend uh, and request you to narrate something from your new book, which is called Things to Leave Behind. Uh, if you please. Thank you. I'd love to do a little reading. So um, my new novel called Things to Leave Behind is set in Kumau in the years 1840 to 1912. And it follows three generations of Kumauni women, also some generations, women of British or um, American missionary backgrounds. It's a mixed legacy of the uh, British Raj and the, the times, the changing times, they were very important times. And when we go back, they seem very modern sometimes. So I'm going to read a chapter where this uh, magnificently eccentric character called Tilotama, who um, dominates this novel, she's just learned to read and write on her own. And she's trying to break out of the stifling constraints of being a young Brahmin woman, woman in a very um, strict society, strict patriarchal okay. society. So here she encounters Swami Vivekanand. I'm going to read this chapter to you. Mm -hmm. The chapter is titled Go Forth Without a Path. She, she has begun to read and this is transforming her life. So it was not just the men who were reading strange books and behaving strangely. There was Tilotama, 
opening out with delight and wonder to the new world, the new millennium that was just round the corner. She read the news and views printed in the local newspaper, the Almora Akbar, regularly and conscientiously. The books she borrowed from the local library and bought from the English bookshop imparted an exhilarating sense of the changes that were taking place around India and the world. There is so much to be discovered, she thought wistfully. So much to be seen and heard and experienced, but not for me. Religious ways seemed to be changing too. A tall, well-built, English-speaking, cigar-smoking monk, dressed in orange robes and turban, with an imposing gait and personality, had arrived in Almora for the summer months. Swami Vivekanand was a follower of Swami Ramakrishna. He was lodged in Oakley House, the guest of Lala Harisha. Almora was blessed by his visit, and even the women folk were allowed to go and hear his discourses. Tilotama decided to observe Swami Vivekananda at first hand. She sat quietly in the last row among the assembled disciples. He had a magnetic presence, and his aura spread and settled across the room. His eyes held her. His eyes and the faint fragrance that trailed after him as he entered the room. Despite her natural skepticism, she could well imagine herself becoming this man's disciple. Each soul is potentially divine, he began. Manifest your divinity by work or worship, mental discipline or philosophy, and be free. Go forth without a path, fearing nothing, caring for nothing, wandering alone like the rhinoceros. Even as a lion not trembling at noises, even as the wind not caught in the net, even as the lotus leaf untainted by water, do thou wander alone like the rhinoceros. The Lotama was listening intently. What is the definition of freedom? she asked Swami Vivekananda. Would I be allowed to chew tobacco if I became your disciple? she continued, or to smoke cigars? The congregation was shocked by her question, but the Swami took it on his stride. The aside is, of course, the fragrance that followed him was his cigars because Vivekanand and his cigars were not to be parted. Tobacco is an evil, he replied, giving her his thoughtful scrutiny. I am human like you and have to wrestle with my faults. I suffer from lumbago for my sins and asthma. Would you encourage or allow your child, your son or daughter to chew tobacco? Ask yourself that question. Thank God you are not God, Tilottama replied. The response was sincere and heartfelt, and the irreverence and unsuitability of her reply hit home only when she heard the gasps and shocked sighs from the rest of the pious audience. Arise ye mighty and be strong, work on and on, struggle on and on, Swami Vivekananda responded. His eyes met hers, and she could glimpse the laughter in them. Very, very nice. So I think that is what in India sometimes we forget, the humanity of our saints Hmm. and the humanity of the Hindu religion. Hmm. I think probably this question now makes sense. My dad forwarded me this from the same Mr. Sanwal. What's the reason for for the rich cultural tradition of Almora with Uday Shankar, Swami Vivekananda, Sumitrananda Panth, Roy Rich and yourself and others? Does that...? Yes. So, um, I think, Kumau, 
Anne Almora had a very rich and cosmopolitan background because uh, it was on A, the great trade routes with Tibet and it was also on the B, on the great religious routes that there were seekers from all religions, there were peers, there were fakirs, there were Christian missionaries, there were Hindu saints of all persuasions and they were seeking the silence of the Himalayas and trying to learn something from that landscape. Then there were also the British, the tourists and as you mentioned there were the the rich matrix of uh, the, uh, the artists, the painters, Rorik, mm. the Shankars. A lot was happening there mm. and uh, in this new novel of mine a lot of it is reflected in those times. So thank you for that question. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. You can catch all upcoming episodes on the website globalize-asian.co.uk or via your iOS or Android devices. Also, if you wish to join us as a speaker and share your story, please do drop us a message via the contact form on the website. That's it for now from Gagan and Vetsala. Thank you very much, guys, for listening to our podcast. A quick shout out to our supporter for the podcast, Royal Beans. Royal Beans is a premium artisan chocolate brand operating out of the city of Bangalore in India. Currently, they are offering Belgian chocolate bonbons infused with interesting flavors like cappuccino, masala chai, dark chocolate ganache, sea salt caramel, and many more. Just visit their website on royalbeans.in and order for yourself or get it delivered to your loved ones in major cities across India. As a listener of a podcast, you are entitled to get 10% discount on the order value when you use the code GLA10 at the checkout. So go ahead and check it out.